you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 37. Many of you are old enough to remember, some 38 years ago, when a disturbed young man by the name of John Hinckley, in an, in an attempt to impress the actress Jodie Foster, showed up where President Reagan and his entourage were coming out of a hotel after a speech. He took a 22 caliber revolver and fired six shots. He wounded three members of the group and one bullet ricocheted off of the car and wounded the president, who was immediately taken to the hospital and rushed into surgery. The vice president then was George H.W. Bush, who was on a trip to Dallas. And so they, there was confusion, obviously, chaos in the midst of all of this that was going on. And so uh, Alexander Haig, who was the Secretary of State and a former NATO commander and a four-star general and a man whose ego you couldn't put into 12 superdomes, uh, stepped to the microphone at the White House and said, don't worry, everything's okay, and I'm in charge here. Of course, anyone who had ever had a ninth grade civics class knew that he was not in charge because the line of succession of ascending to the presidency goes the vice president, the speaker of the house, the president of the senate, and then cabinet members, the secretary of state being first. So the, the problem is that the same confusion that was going on that day in the White House uh, reigns in the minds of many people today about who is in charge of the universe. Is God governing the affairs of man? Or is man controlling his own lot in life and all of its attendant events? Or is it Satan who reigns? Or do God and Satan have kind of a co-reign who both of them together are ruling the universe? Or maybe it's fate are kismet. Maybe there's just some blind, impersonal force that fixed the order of circumstances in the universe. The question is, who or what is in charge? And much like General Haig's misguided statement that day in January of 1981, uh, many people uh, today assign control of the world to anything and everything but God. The truth of the matter is God is in charge. He alone is governing the universe, reigning and ruling over the present condition and the future destiny of every person on the planet. That is the message of Holy Scripture. Our Lord is controlling all events, all circumstances for His glory and for our good. Part of our statement of faith, which is taken from the abstract of principles, which is the oldest confession of faith in the Southern Baptist Convention, says this about providence. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. The old Westminster Confession said, God does immutably, immutably ordain 
whatsoever comes to pass. That is the message of Scripture. God is in charge. Now, again, as we've said many times through our study of the book of Job, what happens is people look at an event that they cannot understand and say, well, I just can't believe God would let that happen. It doesn't really matter what you believe or what you think. God is still in charge. We fail to take into account what Isaiah said, what I read this morning in the call to worship, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. We don't understand the things that God does, but it is a fundamental truth that God is in charge. And that is the message of of Job chapter 37. Elihu is driving home the point to Job that the same God who controls the storms, who controls nature, also controls the storms of life. Therefore, Job should put away any thought of God not being righteous, of God not being just, that he should put his confidence in God and believe that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. That is the paramount truth of Elihu to Job. And it is a message that strengthens the heart of God's people. I don't understand everything that God does. But I should not understand everything that God does. I'm not God. He is. But I trust that whatever God is doing, even the things that I recoil in horror, whatever God is doing, He is doing what is right. Because He is right. He is righteous. He is just. That is the message of Elihu. He begins in the first five verses by saying that God controls the electrical storm. It's a dramatic description of a storm. I remember when I was a a little boy, maybe three or four years old, we had a terrible storm. And I, I was frightened out of my mind. And my father took me by the hand. We walked over to the door. We had a storm door what they called him then, and he said, I want you to stand here a minute, and then he picked me up, and he said, I want us to stand here a minute, and I want you to look at this, because this is beautiful, and the lightning was down through the sky, just, and the thunder was rumbling, and after a moment, my father holding me, I realized it is beautiful, and, and I don't love the damage that storms cause, but I love storms. Because they are indeed beautiful. And Elihu says they are evidence of the mighty power of God. And he uses the electrical storm to say to Job, just like God controls that storm, he controls the affairs of life. Elihu was gripped with a deep sense of awe. Verse 1, at the mighty power of God at this referring to God's sovereign control of nature. My heart trembles, leaps out of its place, just to see the mighty works of God displayed in the storm. He tells Job to keep listening, verse 2 through 5, literally listen, listen to the voice of God. It's unconstrained 
public word from God, from the whole heaven. God is speaking in this storm, and he is saying, I am sovereign. I am in charge. I brought this storm. I brought it for a reason. Listen. Uh, it's an incomprehensible voice. Verse 5, Elihu says, we cannot comprehend it. We can't understand it. But God controls it. That's the key. And secondly, verses 6 through 10, God controls the snowstorm, shifting his focus to winter. Uh, right about this time, our focus kind of shifts to winter. Yeah, we kind of long for them cooler days, you know. Uh, you know, this is, what, t today or tomorrow, one, I think it's the first day of fall, you know, and it's so hot the trees are about to burst into flames. What's that about? So we kind of get thinking about snowstorm. And Elihu uh, says that God says to the snow, fall on the earth, and the snow obeys. He says to the, to the rain, be a mighty downpour, and it obeys. The point is, only God exercises infinite power over creation. Verses 7 and 8, he says that a snowfall or a heavy rain can stop every man from working in the field, demonstrating their dependence on God. They are subject to the weather. They have to fit their schedule to God's schedule. Mankind must surrender to the weather. and The weather is under God's sovereign control. That's one of our oldest uh, axioms, you know. Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything. God does. He controls it. Even the animals who are suited to outdoor living, they take to their lives. They go into their dens. Their lives are disrupted by God's power. The implication for Job is, Job, you better take cover too. You've been saying some really dumb things, and you better pay attention. In verses 9 and 10, he said, The tempest comes from its chamber by divine edict. God displays his omnipotence by bringing the blistering cold from the driving wind. Behind the wind is God who orders the elements. And they obey his command. The breath of God is a metaphor for the chilling wind that produces ice on the broad waters. The frozen conditions of the cold winter should remind Job that the painful seasons of life are directed by God, ultimately for man's good. And then in verses 11 through 13, he says that God controls the rainstorm. Elihu portrays the rain clouds as being sent by God for the good of man, as Job himself had experienced. By sovereign directive, God loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning among them, and then empties these same clouds. God fills and drains the clouds at his command, at his direction. They move around in the sky wherever he commands. The point is, God controls the storms of life. Like the clouds, God fills man's life with sorrow and then empties it of pain. This is a message of hope for Job. The same God who had brought difficulty into Job's life would be the God who would remove it. Uh, in this ordeal that Job is going through, Elihu is indicating to him with a word from God, remember, that it is but for a season. 
and that it will end and better days will come. Verse 13, he says, the directing of these storms is purposeful. It is never random. God uses storms for his own purpose in man's life, either to provide or to punish. He brings the clouds to punish man, Elihu declared. Or conversely, he brings the storm to water the earth to show his love, sometimes to cool the summer heat. The rain causes the crops to grow, providing man with food. Both uses of the storm are from God, whether it is to blast or to bless. Sometimes God brings blasting in our life to clear out the sin that is there. Sometimes he brings blessing, but it is God who brings both. That is the message of verses 14 through 24. God controls all the storms of life, not only physically, not only in the the physical universe, but spiritually as well. So far, this has been a description filled with awe at the might and the power and the majesty of God. Elihu asked questions. Can anyone understand? Now it becomes very personal. Look what he says. Verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Hear this, O Job. Do you know? Do you know? Can you? Now Elihu is calling for an individual response from Job. Elihu asked Job uh, to question the limitation of his knowledge. Do you know? And his power. Can you? It's very similar to what God is going to say to Job. Where were you when I laid out the foundations of the earth? Answer me if you know. It's a foolish thing to question God's justice and God's righteousness and God's power. You can't do that. You just can't do that. I'm always amused by people who question God's sovereignty and salvation. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul does. He, he gives abundant explanation that God is sovereign in all things. And then he says, well, you answer, you, you're going to ask the question, you know, how can man resist if God ordains it? You know what Paul says? Who do you think you are to question God? Just who do you think you are to say that God didn't do it right? In the book of Romans, we're going to be looking at that before long. But, I mean, it's really. That's what Elihu is saying to Job. Who do you think you are? You seriously believe that you can question the goodness of God? Do you seriously believe that God should answer to you? This God who controls all the storms of life somehow should come and ask your permission before he allows or orders something in your life? In verse 15, Elihu asked Job if he can understand how God controls the most unpredictable and chaotic phenomena in the universe, the weather. No, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why God orders this or that with regard to weather. Only God knows. Verse 16, he says, For he is perfect in knowledge. And he has given Elihu, remember the words of one who is perfect in knowledge. It's a word of prophecy. It is a word that comes from God. In verse 17, Elihu reminds Job of those stiflingly hot days in the Middle East that when the 
the wind from the dry southern desert, whatever you wear, it feels like your clothes are on fire. You've been in the Middle East, you know exactly what that feels like. Jesus used a similar illustration in Luke chapter 12 when he said, when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. The wind that comes off of the southern desert, hot. The point is, Job knows what it is to experience the weather, but he cannot control the weather. Job knows what it's like to experience pain and loss in life, but he doesn't control that either. In view of the mysterious, awesome greatness of God uh, and his control over the weather, Elihu is saying it is presumptuous, it is arrogant, it is wrong for Job to want to draw up a case before God and have God appear in the dock before him. It's like sending a message to God and saying, I want to speak with you and challenge you. It's a wish to be swallowed up, he says in verse 20. How much wiser is it to bow before God's sovereign wisdom and say, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways? What I can understand, I will seek to understand, and what I cannot, I will trust. I will believe. That is faith. That is faith. Maybe Elihu delivered this uh, speech in an actual storm. We don't know. But maybe that's what he, he talks about then, that when he talks about the wind clearing the clouds away, the bright sun coming out, he, that, that was actually happening, or maybe he's just talking about when the storm is over and the sun comes out again. And into that overwhelming brightness, Elihu describes God coming out of the north in golden splendor. Of course, the sun never literally shines out of the north. In ancient, uh, in ancient Near Eastern religions, the north was the mountain of the gods. The Hebrew word for north is Zaphon. Mount Zaphon was the mythological uh, mountain of the gods corresponding to Olympus in Greek mythology. Uh, the arrogance of the king of Babylon, you remember, in Isaiah 14, uh, is described by saying, I will ascend to, the, to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the amount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Elihu is saying to Job, Job, you're so arrogant, somehow you think you're a god. You, you think, you know, that, you know, the rest of us are having coffee at Starbucks and you're, you've got an invitation, you know, to sit with God, or the gods. So, now, Elihu, don't get me wrong, Elihu doesn't believe in a mythological place called Zaphon. He takes that storybook figure and appropriates the language for the one true God. That is why in Psalm 48, Zion is described as being in the far north. Now that's not a geographical description. Zion was actually in the southern part of the promised land. It is using storybook language to say that Zion is the true home of the one true God. And Elihu describes God as coming with awesome majesty. And obviously the proper response is to bow in worship, to bow in adoration. In light of the fact uh, 
that God is sovereign over all of the physical creation and all of the spiritual entities of life, we should bow before Him. He is transcendent. He is great in power. Elihu says we cannot find Him. And we may be confident that He will not violate justice and righteousness. That is to say, He will not oppress anyone and He will not contradict justice. Only God, who has all power, can guarantee that not only does he know how to achieve justice, but he will actually do it. He will do it. Because God is good, and because he has all power, he will do what is right. So Elihu says in verse 24, the proper response is to fear him. To fear God was what Job had done his whole life. Remember how we started in chapter 1? Job was a man who feared God and avoided evil. It defined his wisdom in chapter 28. It was the fear of God. And yet Elihu is concerned that some of the things that Job has said in his pain have been arrogant things, presumptuous things, things that are not right about God. And we know that to be true. Remember that Elihu is much different than the other three. The other three keep telling Job, Job, the reason you're in this mess is you've committed some terrible sin. That's what's caused it. Elihu says, well, I don't know about that, but I do know this. In the midst of all of your suffering and pain, you have sinned. You have said things about God that are not right. You have questioned the righteousness of God. And Job, you don't get to do that. No matter how much pain. You have been through. Elihu makes four remarkable speeches. Neither Job nor the other three have made any attempt to interrupt him. He claims to speak with the voice of God, inspired prophecy. Uh, and God is preparing to speak himself. Job, uh, Elihu began his answers to Job, the first speech, by focusing on the justice of God. God. God does speak. He speaks in prophecy. He speaks in conscience. He speaks in suffering. He speaks to save. He speaks to work out his justice and his righteousness among men. In the second speech, perhaps the most deeply theological of the four, Elihu argued that God must just simply be right by virtue of the fact that he is God and that God cannot be anything but right. And to challenge the justice of God is to deny his deity. To challenge the justice of God is to challenge the very deity of God as to whether or not he's even God. If you question whether or not God has done what is right, you're questioning whether or not he's really God because we know that God always does right always, and to look to heaven and say, God, you've been wrong here. Well, then he must not be God. That's the point of Elihu's uh, second speech. In the third speech, Elihu challenges the prosperity gospel question. What profit is there in being pious? And with his radical 
God-centeredness, Elihu says that's just not the right question. You're too self-centered to even know that that question isn't even the right question. That's an uncomfortable truth, but it's true. It's it's wrong question to even ask. What profit is there in being righteous? If if you don't understand any more about God and the gospel than that, don't ask the question. Finally, in his last speech, he helps Job to think with his mind, but to feel with his whole person, all of his holy affections, the awesome and mighty power of God, and to understand that only such power can put into effect cosmic justice. And he calls upon Job and every believing sufferer to bow in humble adoration before God. When we do not know what God is doing in his power, we need to trust in the person of God. That because he is God, he cannot, he will not, do wrong. He will only do what is right, what is good, what is righteous. We're going to have a